Bishop Pat's story. You are the Church of Ireland Bishop of Meath and Kildare. We're here in your home in Moyglare. You were the first woman bishop in Ireland and the United Kingdom. And uh, we're looking in this Jubilee Year of Mercy as declared by Pope Francis, but we're taking a look from the other denominations as well about the importance and significance of mercy um, as, a, as a concept, as a theological concept and a spiritual practice. What is it for you? I've been thinking about this. Uh, I knew it was the Year of Mercy and I've spoken a couple of times in Catholic churches recently about the Year of Mercy. And one of the phrases that I really like is the difference between grace and mercy uh, in that um, grace is getting what you don't deserve and mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And I've always found that a really helpful thought um, because I've experienced such a lot of God's mercy in my life. And it is, for me, getting what you don't deserve. And I suppose as Christians, we feel that the cross is the greatest symbol of God's mercy towards us, you know, taking our sin on himself and giving us freedom and peace. Um, and I, I live in freedom and peace, and I'm just I'm so grateful for it. My mother used to say that um, gratefulness was next to godliness. And I actually think that's true. I think the more grateful you are for the mercies in your own life, the closer you do feel to God. Um, It's very hard, I think, to be angry or to be bitter when you're thankful. And so I practice thankfulness a lot, which I think is quite close to mercy. Maybe slightly different concept, but I would practice a lot of thankfulness. Now, it's very easy when you live in Moyglare and you're walking your golden retriever along those beautiful leafy roads with championship horses over the field. So it's very easy to be grateful in that situation. But like anybody else, I've faced challenges in my life and ups and downs. And, and I've always felt a very strong sense of thankfulness for God's mercy. And I suppose for me, you know, as human beings, you know, what we do deserve is actually to pay the price for not giving our all to God and not following God's ways and God's laws. But that's not what we get because of the cross. And I suppose that's the central aspect of mercy to me is that God has been so good to me and given me what I don't deserve. And I, and I count this post in that and that, you know, my appointment was such a left field appointment. It was a big, you know, it was a big risk in a way for the House of Bishops. Um, first woman, but not only that, you know, not a senior cleric at all. So it was a bit of a, a leapfrog into seniority. And I feel like I don't deserve this post either. And yet it's just opened so many doors and given me so many opportunities that I don't deserve. And yet I'm thoroughly enjoying it and trying to make the most of that. So I'm I'm a very thankful person. That's interesting because I was talking to a Jesuit about this year of mercy and he outlined six aspects that the Pope seems to surround it with thematically and one of them is gratitude Mm -hmm. and the importance. And there is that sense, I suppose, if you feel that you have been forgiven, Mm -hmm. then you do feel grateful and, and a release and a joy. Mm-hmm. I think that's true. You know, I, I, I mean, again, I would be, I think I'd be quite a joyful person. Um, now, I'm not knocking the fact that, you know, it can be very, very hard to be thankful and joyful in certain situations. You, you and I are talking, you know, after the incident in Bally James stuff, uh, horrendous incident, uh, a huge amount of suffering. And in my job, I come across it, a lot of suffering. So I'm not making light of that at all. Or, you know, it, it, it is easy for me to be grateful a lot of the time. But I do go through trials like anybody else has and have a normal family life. Like everybody else, I've, I've two grown-up children and I'm about to be a granny in November. Uh, so that's very exciting. But you never know what's ahead of you. And everybody at, at my stage in life has come through a lot. 
like every family, we've had our ups and downs. And, you know, look, when he was 18, had very severe meningitis and was very ill. And it was extremely frightening. And as a Christian, I got a taste of what does it mean to hold on to God when you're going through a very frightening time. So it's not like I've never experienced fear or doubt or any of those things. It's just like holding on for grim death through it, really, and coming out the other side. And Earl had a stroke a few years ago, and we've had lots of challenges through that, you know, at, at 50. So he wasn't well for a while. So I'm not saying it's, it's always easy to be joyful or it's always easy to be thankful. I think it is a practice. I think practice is a good word because you do have to practice it. And sometimes I'm not a morning person, and sometimes I wake up and I don't feel joyful or thankful. Uh, but once I've had my first cup of coffee, I usually <laughs> find it easier to be uh, to be joyful. It, it's not dependent necessarily on circumstances. My circumstances are great at the moment but they haven't always been great and uh, you know I've faced various things in my life um, and so it's not always easy but I think if you practice it do you recognise that I, mean, I know that there's always a lot of people worse off and that can be very hard to practice as well because again my, my parents used to say you know just because you've got a sore toe and the guy down the road has a broken leg doesn't mean that you don't feel your sore toe so sometimes it's a bit blasé to say oh there are people worse off but I find the people that are truly suffering actually can be the most merciful and the most joyful people and that fascinates me I knew a couple very well in Derry when I was in Derry who'd lost their son and they were just amazing people and deeply spiritual people, very thankful people for all that they'd had. And I just used to sit and wonder at how they did that. You know, if you have a child, you couldn't bear the thought of losing them. And the fact that they've been able to pick themselves up and go on and also have a really deep personal faith. I mean, I find humbling. I really do. And I've met lots of people like that who've really had the worst possible things happen to them. And yet they seem to be able to get up in the morning and walk on and have a deep faith. And that Bally James Duff incident is, that you're referring to is an absolute tragedy. I think the country is stunned. They were talking about it to me in the supermarket. The, the death by um, murder-suicide, mm-hmm. it would appear. The father has taken the life of his three children and his wife. And a whole community and an immediate family will be utterly destroyed by that in some level. And yet... As you are saying, people can, in the midst of huge adversity, at some point maybe come to a deeper sense mm-hmm. of a, a mercy, a sense of forgiveness. There seems to be, but it is a process, it seems to be something that we have to work through or with in time. Yeah, yeah it's definitely a journey, you know, I mean, you couldn't. And, you know, I've grown up through the troubles, as have you, Pat, and, you know, you, you don't easily say to people you have to forgive. I mean, imagine saying that to a family grieving today. You know, forgiveness and, and mercy is a journey. And I suppose if we want to be like God, we become more merciful as we go along. But that, in, in horrendous circumstances, can be a very big ask. And, you know, we all remember Gordon Wilson and the example of Gordon Wilson being able to say immediately that he forgave you know, the people who killed his daughter. But not everybody can. And, you know, that's a huge ask. And I think that that's a journey for people. And I often say to people when I'm praying with people who are, who are finding it difficult to forgive, all you need to do, the first step is being willing to forgive. You don't have to be there yet. And, you know, the first step is just being willing to forgive and even that can take years you know, for somebody to be willing to forgive so it's not for us to say to anybody else you know you ought to have mercy on this person or you ought to feel forgiveness towards somebody who has deeply deeply hurt you 
it is a journey. But I think as Christians, it is certainly our aim, and it's what we're asked to do is forgive our enemies, love our enemies. What a huge ask. You know, that's so difficult. It's something that you can't minimise, and yet, as a Christian ideal, it's definitely there, and it's definitely a biblical principle that we're asked to adhere to. Yeah, and it is a non-negotiable biblical Mm. principle because you cannot read the Old Testament where the whole notion of jubilee came from, mm-hmm. um, the, the letting go of the, the slaves, the land goes fallow and debts are yes. forgiven, a huge thing, mm-hmm. that in some way it is core mm-hmm. to, when you read the New Testament then, to our understanding of our relationship with Jesus Christ, with the Father, and then with other people yeah. and how we live that out. Well, uh, certainly, I mean, you, you can't be married without practising forgiveness <laughs> either. You know, uh, you know, if you're in any kind of a long-term relationship, there are going to be issues between you that, that you need to forgive. I need forgiven regularly. I'm very impatient. Uh, my husband needs forgiven occasionally, not as much. Uh, you know, when you're in a relationship with children or friends, you know, you'll always face moments when you need to forgive because nobody's perfect and no relationship is perfect. And so I think, again, that sort of practising mercy in the small things could be a good training ground for having to be merciful maybe in, in the big things. Um, but it, it is a core principle and we can't get away from it. You know, when somebody has hurt you in a minor way, even that can be very hard to forgive. But there's a passage in, in one of Paul's letters that talks about not letting something take root. And I think that's really important. I think bitterness can quite easily, and unforgiveness can very easily take root. And once it takes root, you can become a bitter person. We all know bitter people and we probably don't want to be one. But I think it's in the small things. If you let If you let a small bitterness take root or a small resentment... It's, it's good to keep a clear board with God, you know, where every morning you're confessing your sins and receiving God's mercy. Every day, you know, when I go for a walk, I'm, you know, thinking over the things I said or I did and asking forgiveness for the things that I did wrong and where I've missed the mark when that's a daily thing. Um, so it's kind of trying to keep a clean slate with God and, uh, and realising that, you know, you start with the small things and you need to be able to forgive the small things that happen, and some of us find that very difficult. So how much more immense is it to forgive a big hurt that's been done to you? And yet, when you hold unforgiveness, it's you that's trapped, isn't it? You know, it's you that's suffering. The other person maybe doesn't even know or doesn't care anymore, but you're trapped by your own bitterness or resentment or unforgiveness, and it's actually freedom for you. And I often say to people, you know, it's you that wants to live free of this. It's you that's holding on to this, and, you know, your hand is clenched. It's you that needs to open your hand and, and know freedom and peace. So when we hold a lack of mercy towards others, actually it's us who suffer. You mentioned at the start grace and mercy. Do you think being able to forgive or being merciful is a, is a grace, is something that is God-led at the end of it all? I suppose I think yes and no. Uh, I do think that. Um, I do think that we can't do anything without God's permission and God's activity first. You know, he's the proactive one. But I also think, you know, there is an onus on us to practice it. Do you know, if God gave us the ability to be gracious and to be merciful, I think left ourselves, it wouldn't be long before we, you know, we're going the other road and reversing quickly down it. Um, So I do think, you know, God gives us the ability and the gifts But I also think it's actually up to us to make sure that we're practising that every day and that we're making sure that there isn't bitterness lurking somewhere. And there usually is. 
Uh, you know, there's always a relationship in everybody's life that's difficult. When I speak, I always say, I, I bet now you can think of somebody straight away that you find difficult and that you, you would be inclined to hold unforgiveness towards. And everybody can think of somebody, you know, because there's always somebody at in least your life. One. Yeah, at least one, exactly. But there's always somebody in your life that you don't get on with easily. So I think particularly practicing forgiveness towards that person can be the hardest thing of all. But it is 70 times 7. You know, it's, it'll be a long time before you get to the end of that. And that is the difficulty, isn't it? That somehow the demand of, of the gospel, the demand of mercy, if we are to be as God is merciful, it really doesn't have a lot to do with justice or quid pro quo or, well, they did this, so therefore mm. this. That's not to say people don't have to take responsibility yes. for things they do wrong. But there is something scandalously abundant that makes it really hard to be merciful the way we believe God is merciful and the way that Jesus showed us mm-hmm. the mercy of the Father. Yeah. I mean, mercy is a scandal, isn't it? Do you know, another, if we take the principle of justice and God is a very just God and believes in justice and we're meant as Christians to hate injustice, but mercy supersedes that and that is a scandal because people who don't follow that way of life or people who aren't Christians sometimes believe in justice as a greater principle than mercy but I think our God believes that mercy supersedes justice and again that's not to say that people don't have to pay for crimes with prison sentences or whatever is said to be just but it's that in our dealings with others we're meant to allow mercy to supersede justice. Justice is very important to me. You know, I feel like justice is a principle that I would want to live by as well. But there certainly are many occasions when I feel that mercy is is what God is asking of me, much more than justice. Sometimes we have to let go of feeling that we've been Put, that, that, that things have been put right or that, um, you know, that we've got a sense of justice for ourselves. Sometimes we don't get that because what's more important to God is, is actually that we offer mercy to that person rather than seeking justice for ourselves. And I know that that's much easier said than done, uh, you know, because I'm a human being like everybody else. Bishops are no different to anybody else. We struggle with all the same stuff. We all have family lives, we all have friendships, we all have neighbours. Those things can be very difficult, but we still, as you say, we cannot get away from that being an inherent Christian principle that we are meant to live by. I mean, if Jesus had believed in justice above mercy, he wouldn't have died on the cross for us, because that wasn't just. That was an act of supreme mercy. And if we want to be like Jesus, I suppose we have to put mercy above justice. And I was reading recently that when Jesus dies and then you have the resurrection and the Christian community that arises out of the power of experience in the risen Christ and it is nothing to do with taking revenge or gloating over or those who, who you don't know, say we were right we got it right or now we have the power it's a totally different way like the call of being a Christian is a radical call mm-hmm. in some ways maybe we have domesticated it somewhat and that call to mercy in this year is like a call back to a very radical demanding form of following Christ. Yeah, it is. I think in the North we call it whataboutery, don't we? You know, as soon as one person is challenged for their own sins and their own participation in the troubles, and and we all include ourselves in that, you know, there's the whataboutery, but, you know, what about what he did and what about what she did and what about what was done to us? You know, we're called to be different. And, you know, Christians aren't always a great example of Jesus 
but I suppose the thing is we try and we're moving in the right direction and I read something recently that I, that I really liked which said that what we should be concentrating on is who we're becoming. I look back on my Christian faith and my journey. I've been a Christian over 35 years because I didn't come to faith till I was 19 or 20. Oh, really? Well, um, tell me about that. What yeah, happened? I, well, I, I just had a non-churched, unchurched background and I didn't really know the gospel and I went to university, to Trinity, with a friend from school and I didn't know her very well but I did know that she was a committed Christian so I wasn't too happy about that because I thought, well, this is going to be a bundle of laughs, you know, we're going to spend our time in prayer and Bible study. But I, of course it worked the other way around. You know, she worked on me and I saw her example and her friends and I just I just knew that she had something that I didn't have. I started to read the Gospels and the personality of Jesus just jumped out at me and that was 35 years ago. You know, I've been on a journey since then and if I'm not becoming a more merciful person, there's something wrong. I'd have to ask my family and those closest to me whether that's true or not. <laughs> Notice they're not here. I've no Yeah, exactly. That's why I invited you when there was nobody here. <laughs> But it's very interesting then that journey that you had. So when you do look at your life, you must see it as an amazing grace because Mm -hmm. I'm sure from somebody who was unchurched and not Mm -hmm. really fussed to end up being a bishop. And that's, and as you say, it was a big step because even within the Church of Ireland to have a female bishop, the first in the Mm -hmm. UK and Ireland, that was a huge step for for the institution. Yes, it was. It's all a bit of a shock for my parents. <laughs> um, Are they still... Um, my mum's dead, so she didn't see me be made a bishop, but she did see me ordained and, and director. And, uh, you know, she. I think they were in shock at first when I came home and, you know, said, that, you know, that I'd come to faith. And But they were delighted, you know, absolutely delighted. And, and my, dad is, my dad's very proud of me. And would they have... I mean, they, presumably you didn't get your faith then from them. No. So <laughs> would they be believers or are they more lackadaisical but very happy for no, you? They would be believers now, and I think in a very quiet way, they would have had, you know, had a very moral upbringing, and they always believed in God. They just probably wouldn't have described themselves as committed Christians, and we weren't churchgoers. Um, but I think now my dad would describe himself as that. Um, so he's had a journey of his own, as did my mum before she died. Um, so people express it in different ways. Some people are very quiet, private Christians. As a bishop, I can't be that. You know, I'm a public Christian, uh, which has lots of pressures of its own. Yeah, I mean, I, I've had an, an amazing journey and I am so thankful because I look back. You know, I was very happy in the first 19 years of my life. Didn't think I needed God. But there was just there was just something about reading the Gospels that just completely changed my life. And I've been in a different direction ever since. I mean, I, I went to college wanting to be an air hostess you know to do languages so that I could be an air hostess and almost the minute I came to faith I started to think about leadership in a Christian context I didn't get there for a long time but there weren't ordaining women at that stage for a start but I did all sorts of different things I went to be a youth worker in a church and got married Earl and had children you know and did the mother at home thing too which was the hardest job I ever did and I include being a bishop in that <laughs> oh gosh that's a good one for <laughs> yeah. the record no, bishop says harder to be a mother yeah it is it's harder to be a mother full-time at home you know, I find those you know very challenging years. I'm really glad I did it. How many children do you have? I have two grown-up children. One's in Derry and married and pregnant with her our first grandchild and my son's in Australia on his third gap year uh, and no intention of settling down and getting into a career although his father does ask very regularly what what are your plans son but he's met a girl now so I think the chances of him coming home are very slim. So you then stayed at home did that find it incredibly difficult which many women Mm -hmm. would say it Mm -hmm. is it's it's a it's a full-time job Mm -hmm. 24 hour 
Uh, and then what happened? When the children were about seven and three and, and Luke had gone to nursery, I began to think again, what am I going to do with my life? Uh, loved being a mum, but I just felt a call to something as well as that. Um, and I started to think about maybe teaching or ordination because women were being ordained at that stage. This was sort of the early 90s. Talked it over with Earl, my husband, who wasn't keen at all because he's ordained and he thought two people ordained in the same family would just be horrendous. To some degree, he was right. And so we took a long time in our own journey and our marriage as well about thinking this through. And then he said, look, you have to push the door and think, you know, see if it's the right thing. I think he says he didn't, you know, he never thought the door would open. (laughs) So it was a bit of a risk for him. But he, I mean, he's just completely completely supportive now and thinks it was the best thing ever and thinks I'm just like a duck to water in this job so he's completely supportive but we did have a journey in that too of I think men do find it hard when their wives have been at home with children and suddenly you know they want their life back and then you go and get a job and then I mean would you be his boss well no because Earl doesn't have a parish um Earl runs his own business now so definitely not Like he certainly wouldn't want to think of it like that. But he didn't mind. I mean, that's lovely because, you know, that can be a competition thing. And given the way the world is structured and the patriarchy of it, that you could feel that should have been me. So that's really not at all. He doesn't he doesn't feel that at all. And he wouldn't he wouldn't be interested. You know, I mean, neither of us were aiming for this anyway, but he wouldn't be interested in in this at all. You know, he loves the work he's doing. He he works an awful lot with uh, the Protestant community in the north. And, and he loves his work. He's really into peace and reconciliation as Earl's big thing. So he's very happy in the niche that he has now. He was a rector for 20 years and loved it. But he just felt he wanted to do something different. And that kind of opened the way for me to go and be a rector and, and now a bishop. And he's, he's incredibly supportive. And that's another mercy in my life as my husband. I'm very grateful for that. And how many years now have you been a bishop? Uh, just coming three in a few weeks time, three years. Yeah. So can we have the, the scoop on the three years? What's it like? I mean, I, it's an amazing opportunity. I love it. I mean, I, I do feel that it's, a, that it's actually a great fit. I feel that God sent me to the right diocese. Um, I love Meath and Kildare. The people are lovely. They've been so welcoming. They've, there's been no issues about being the first woman. Being a rector as well, once you get into the job and you start to do it, people forget your gender. You know, you, you just become their rector or their bishop. And, you know, it's obvious I'm a woman. I'm not saying that, but and, and you probably... I never can quite put my finger on what it is, but you probably do behave differently because you're female and you represent, you know, 52% of the population. But it's been an amazing journey. You know, the first year was definitely finding my feet because before I was a bishop, I didn't know what a bishop did. (laughs) Still, I'm a bit more sure than I was the first year, but it's taken me time to find my feet. But I love the privilege of the doors that it opens and the invitations that I get to speak, speaking at in Loch Derg in a couple of weeks time at their day of prayer and I just think what an amazing opportunity and I, and I do lots of speaking at Catholic events as well. Yeah, I was just going to that. ask you that you've mentioned that so you do mm. get a lot of invitations I Yeah I do and I love that I just love being with a, a body of people that I wouldn't normally work with uh, and I love the, the, the Christian partnership in that and obviously the priests that invite me tend to be more progressive priests or they wouldn't invite me so I've done a few solemn novenas and I did that in Derry as well when I was a rector and and I love that part of work it's one of my favourite 
bits of the work actually but I just I love going down to parishes and seeing my own people and encouraging and equipping clergy and it's got a load of variety and I need variety I have a low boredom threshold so I need variety in a job and that's one of the things that I just love I'm, I'm doing a different thing every day there's a structure to my week but but there's a load of variety and I'm doing something different and you know I, just, I really do enjoy it I'm, I'm very happy in it I'm very blessed so that's why you have your gratitude mm-hmm. your mercy and your joy then mm-hmm. in what you're doing so, so you're very grateful to your friend of 35 years ago is she still a friend do you still see her I do indeed I see her very regularly yes she's she's in the north and we meet up two or three times a year and she comes down and stays here now and again so we keep in touch and I am grateful to her and lots of other folk who sort of opened the way to me really it's a very different life than I would have had as an air hostess flying over the <laughs> I don't even like flying so that would never have worked <laughs> But you're lucky the Lord had other plans. I, I am indeed. Yeah, I am indeed. Bishop Pat Story, we wish you all the very best. Thank you for talking to us and the very best as you celebrate your third anniversary and I hope you have many more. Thank you very much, Pat.